Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, hello. Welcome to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Philip Wilding. And where stories and writing are concerned, Phil has done a bit of everything, and, and all of it, really. He is a journalist, a radio producer, and a novelist too. He's ghostwritten memoirs and toured the world writing about music, and has taken that experience and the love of Americana into his newest book. It's called The Death and Life of Red Henley. We talk about how he's deliberately changed how he's written each of his books, also how he switches on different parts of his brain depending on what the work needs, and we hear how the story changes as he gets into writing it. And I started writing one thing, and then as many writers I'm sure have told you, by the end of it, I was writing something else entirely. Uh, and then I hit a junction before I had to sort of finish and do the day job, where I was suddenly found a new path through... This all sounds very vague, I'm so sorry. Um, but I, I, yeah, I started to write one thing this morning about love, which then turned into mania and kind of murder and then went back to love. But when I started writing that this morning, that wasn't what I set up to write. But it did take me to a part of the book where I wanted to go. There is lots more this week with Philip Wilding in our brand new writer's routine. Yes, welcome along to the show. My name's Dan Simpson, and this is Writer's Routine, the podcast where we take a look through an author's working day to see how they get stuff done, to see where, when, and generally how they write. How do they take that idea, put it down on a page, and publish it, self-publish it, do whatever they can to hopefully make it into a bestseller. This week we are joined by the fantastic storyteller and a brilliant talker of storytelling, Philip Wilding. Uh, Phil works as a radio producer and has for years working in different national radio stations all around London. He's worked as a journalist, following musicians all around the world, documenting their tours. Uh, he's ghostwritten books as well. He wrote Carl Barat from the uh, Libertines memoir, uh, and he's published Cross Country Murder Song before his most recent book, The Death and Life of Red Henley. It's a noir novel about 1980s New York, and also a religious commune in Tennessee, and the myriad characters entwined in the death of Red Henley. And I love the title of it, The Death and Life of Red Henley, flipping it on its head. We talk about why he's done that in the chat. Also, you can hear why it was old ambitions 
and almost a checklist of what he wanted a book to be that made him write this story. You can hear how working for him is a bit feast or famine and how that infects the attitude of how his work is going as well, either really well or maybe not too brilliantly at all. We talk about why he leaves quite a bit of time in between writing his books and how he switches on different parts of his brain depending on what's going on, whether he's working on more newsy stuff or perhaps something a tad more creative. So there's a lot going on this week with Philip Wilding and we jump into it as we always do talking about what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Uh, that depends on the book. So first book was my desk at my old flat staring at a wall. Uh, second book I wrote entirely in longhand uh, on the Brighton to London train each morning. I actually wrote most of that book literally in longhand in a pad. Uh, and in this instance for the new novel, which is forthcoming, uh, I, it's a sofa in my bedroom, uh, in uh, which is uh, sits in a bay window. And I sit on that sofa to write all that, or between that and the desk, which has a uh, which has a painting of the yellow cow above it by uh, Franz Mark. Do you know Franz Mark? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not too good with painters and artists. I'm afraid. Oh, don't be afraid. It's fine. Yeah, I only discovered him. I was in the Guggenheim in uh, New York, and uh, of course I was. And uh, the the magic the yellow cow hangs on a wall there. And um, I don't know if you've ever had this in a moment in a gallery or an art space. And I kind of ran towards the painting and became absolutely um, fascinated by it. And so now a friend of mine, uh, uh, Grant Moon, who helps me a lot with my books, he he bought me a print of it, which I had framed. And now that sits above my desk and also a very expensive photo of a buffalo uh, from Magnum, you know, the Magnum photo agency. Uh, that hangs above my desk too. And this is beautiful contemplative shot that this man went into the Yellowstone Park, I think it is and uh, shot some of the buffalo there, photography-wise, didn't kill anything. And it's a beautiful kind of weird pale blue and black um, photograph, but it looks very much like my kind of book covers do in my head. Does that make sense? Sorry if I didn't. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, in terms of art, I am, I mean, I'm fairly basic, and the the artist that makes me do what you described is... um, I mean, it's Hockney, really. Whenever I see uh, like a beautifully bright colour of uh, any Hockney picture, I'm absolutely transfixed. So I, I, I do very much get that. Yeah, I just, I just actually weirdly bought a. Uh, we had a lot. Of, we've had a lot of weird conversations today. Um, I just bought a Hockney T-shirt, bizarrely. Uh, oddly enough, if you ever want a, a kind of unique T-shirt, uh, try the National Portrait Gallery's um, selection of T-shirts, and it's some of their famous images. And it's Hockney as a very young man with floppy blonde hair and glasses looking through a magnifying glass. Uh, and you can buy that on a T-shirt if you so wish from the National Portrait Gallery. And I did. So uh, there you go. Yeah. There's a top tip. These things hang in the air, don't they, I think? Now, uh, so you're on your sofa. You've got things around you. Is it, it just just you and a laptop? Will I find any kind of notes scattered around? Uh, always notepads, lots of notepads. Um as I say, second book was written entirely in in a series of notepads, which I still have, and I, how I can even understand the handwriting now is a mystery to me. Um, so, Phil, why did you do that? Sorry to interject. Why? I mean, th- this th- this would have been you know not too long ago. The laptops were available to you. Yeah, I think um, I moved down to Brighton for the year to kind of work on the second book, um, and then I think I I must have been between la- I can't be between laptops. I had a laptop. But I don't know what happened, but I started, it became a kind of meditative thing where I have a very expensive fountain pen as well. As, as Phil Jupiter once said of my pen, it weighs more than pets I've owned. It is, it is the one extravagant in my life that I kind of bought was this fountain pen. Um, 
And so I'm always writing in my notepads and stuff and jotting things down. Um, and so I just started working on that book just in sort of snatched moments because I don't always have my laptop on me and I wasn't in the habit of writing on my phone. I don't really like doing that so much. So I've got into the habit a bit more. Um, I like the feel of pen on paper. And so I just started with with uh, Red Henley um, on, the, on this kind of commute into London just with my notepad. And it became this kind of magical thing that worked. I'm sure you've spoken to other writers. If you find something that starts to work and helps you write, you just cling to it like a man in, you know, at sea holding onto a piece of wood. You know what I mean? And that's kind of how the second book was born, really, just on that same journey. Even now when I go down to Brighton to visit mates, because I've, I've moved back to London, um, there's still moments where I look up from the kind of, you know, the same window and I think, oh, yeah, that moment happened there or this happened there. And I can still recall sections of that book coming to life on on that journey. It's quite weird, really. It's interesting you say when you're a writer and something's working for you, you stick at it. For, for this novel, the novel you're currently working on, you've gone back to um, well, a laptop now. How are you finding that? Is this, as you would say, is this working for you in the same way? Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely. Because I think when I lived in Brighton, I think I always knew I was going to move back. So there was a kind of transience feeling to it like, that I kind of, I always felt I was kind of in motion. But now that I've been in, gone in this place for five or six years, I think, um, and I've gone, I've now gone into the habit as well of actually making notes on my phone because I bought a new phone. And um, just dumping stuff off your phone onto your laptop, just doing airdrop is like the easiest thing in the world. How how some of the great authors we love and know actually managed to like tack down a book on a typewriter, let alone, you know, scribbling up some notes and then kind of, you know, transferring them to their typewriter. God only knows, you know, we think we can write, you know, those circumstances are incredible. So, um, yeah, I, I think with this, I have a, I have a, I know you like the whole routine thing and I can tell you exactly kind of what I do this place. One, I sit on this sofa. Two, I only listen to usually jazz because I don't have, I don't like music on with, with lyrics when I'm writing. So I, I usually put on a Bill Evans playlist and it kind of hypnotizes me in a weird way. If I, if Bill Evans comes on, I kind of go, ah, book time, which is kind of weird. Uh, and that starts to work for me. So I put a, a random Bill Evans playlist on, which I sort of stop hearing after a while I'm writing. Uh, and I sit in this point on the sofa and it's, it's not like going to work, but it's a kind of, it's like a comfort. I'm, I'm kind of, it's a good way of kind of, it's like lunging before I run. I know that I'm going to be doing something after that, if that makes sense. So yeah, Bill Evans playlist usually, or similar jazz playlist. Usually piano, uh, maybe Herbie Hancock or something. Uh, and then, yeah, I sit on the sofa in the bay window, have a cup of tea or, or usually coffee, um, and then I kind of start to work from there. And I just start going through. So I do every sort of chapter. I dump down a load of my notes that are, that are incredibly random, some of them. Some of them are structure notes. Some of them are just, you know, these weird kind of thoughts like, you know, graffiti on my mental wall. Um, and I start to pick apart things from that. I've really been writing this morning, knowing I was going to talk to you, I felt like I had to catch up on my homework, and and do, I, but I did. I was like, oh, I'm doing this interview. I better I better do some work. Um, but as you know, I've got yeah, I've got a full time job. I've got a couple of full time jobs, and so it's very difficult to make the time. But usually, if I can position myself in the window and listen to Bill Evans, it usually means, honest to God, that I can normally get about 500 words out of the day. I usually can. So Bill Evans, kids, listen to Bill Evans. He's dead now, but still, listen to Bill Evans. Uh, so yeah, so that's that's kind of what it, it, the emotions start with, I suppose. Well, I, I want to unpack that a little more in just a second. Just a, uh, one last question about your laptop. We recently have got quite niche 
um, because people are interested in in software. So you know, you, you did you did your thing longhand and now partially on your phone to a computer with your AirDrop. What, what software are you using, and what font do you write with? I know you're a man that enjoys design. Um, what fonts do you like? Uh, yes. I like, uh, I love, I have a, I have a, a Mac and I use Microsoft Word on the Mac. Um, and, but I love, uh, Gathermond and I love Times New Roman in 13 point. Uh, yeah, I could do that. I could really do that and that stuff. So Gathermond I use quite a lot, but when I work on the novels, the new novel is, is in, is in Times New Roman 13 point. I can tell you that for sure because I, it has to be because I have this finicky kind of, you know, tick that if it isn't in that font, then I can't start work. <laughs> oh, that is sad. <laughs> well, the, thir- the thirteen points interesting. That is, that is. Uh, I've you know spoken to a lot of authors about fonts, and very few have been particular about specifically thirteen points. Yeah, no. T- Times New Roman in thirteen point is is the work of the god. I, I don't know who came up with it. it. Well, I work at the Times. Maybe it was them. I don't know. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, the thirteen point is important. It's got to be in thirteen point. It's weird. Yeah, it can't be twelve or fourteen. It has to be thirteen. So very odd. Yeah, but that, that is my specificity. It has the word I'm looking for. So yeah, 13 points. So if you want to write a novel, yeah, do that. Because I do very much a lot of news uh, journalism now, whereas in the past I didn't. Um, I think as soon as I wake up, I go into news mode. I check about three different kind of, you know, I check the Times, I check the Guardian, I check the BBC. Uh, yeah, I listen to news radio. So that is kind of always there. And, and even if I'm if I'm reading an article, in my, I subscribe to loads of magazines as well just to get ideas of things. And if I'm reading a magazine, I think that's a potential for an article, uh, not a, a radio feature or, you know, a piece. I'll always kind of jot that down. So I think that's always kind of with me. So I think then I do have to yeah, disengage my brain a bit because if I want to then do stuff like, you know, like the novel and things like that, I have to kind of change tack a bit. Or even with the journalism, if I'm – like the last big journalism piece I did was um, for one of the magazines I worked for. I did the anniversary of an album by Rush called Moving Pictures. Um and they're kind of you know infamously famous friends of mine. Blah blah blah. Uh, you don't have to put that bit in, but um, but with that, I went back and listened to that album about twenty times. So I have to kind of, I suppose it's a long phrase really, but I kind of push myself into my own corner. Does that make sense? I I, I have you know, I delineate kind of the different aspects of how I work and the jobs I do, and I kind of very much go into that mode for when I'm. I'm and also, I, I kind of lock everything off. So when I'm writing novels, as I am now. I don't read any fiction. I only read nonfiction. So I can go like two years and not read any fiction because I'm working on a book. I do think so things like little strange like um ticks I have like that. Very kind of weird habits. Now I'm saying them out loud. So yeah. But yes. So that's kind of part of my my, my work day as it were. You you've kind of taken us through what you do when you are writing and the music you have on in the background, but because you do so many jobs, I would like to kind of iron out a working writing day for you uh, you know on a day when maybe you're recording a podcast and you've got a full day job and you're fitting in writing so how does the whole thing look phil kind of the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed um always starts with news i suppose news radio was on usually times or today um and then i usually go running first thing in the morning i i always find that, that i kept running relatively late in my life and now it's kind of one of the few things I can't live without, that and wine probably. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I usually go running in the morning. I haven't this morning because it's so hot. But I try and run about four times a week. And then I'll come back, get myself together, and then I'll try and make a window 
to do some work on the book or do, just even go through notes or stuff I've written. And this depends on whatever the way the weeks are going. Like with last week, with um, not to date this so much, but we had the Boris Johnson stepping down last week. That became all in, all consuming that week. So things like the book and other stuff kind of went out of the window. But then I tried to usually make some, at least some space. There's a, a friend of mine got me this whole, there's a Japanese ethos of doing a little each day. So like this morning, I was writing, working on the book this morning, and I managed about, I was aiming for about 250 words because I just wanted to do a little something today for the book, you know, and to, to make those little margins work on a daily basis. It's like running long distances, you know, it's all a certain amount of steps. And um, and then this morning, and this is always the case usually, I aim for 250, and I wrote about five, 600 words this morning. So I always try to make those windows, but then I can sort of stop that, and then I will have an editorial meeting at, say, 12.30, um, with my presenter and we'll go through the scheduling for the show what have you and then basically set up the running order go into the news uk building uh, and then we will work all day building that show scripting that show go to air at 7 p.m and uh, finish on air at, at uh, 10 p.m and then sometimes i will come home and i will actually look at the book again it depends if it's gone well or badly and i'm sure a lot of writers have told you this you don't know what you've written until you've read it sometime later so something I've read, written in the morning, say, like I've written this morning, I will now not go back and look at that until perhaps either tomorrow morning or tonight when I get back. So that's kind of how a, so a Times Radio day would work if I'm trying to kind of working my exercise and my my book as well. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I, it makes me think that there's a lot going on. <clears throat> you must be uh, not just kind of physically knackered, but also mentally exhausted from you know, doing the running and then thinking about the book and then thinking about the show and then actually doing the show and then having to wind down after that. Uh, how, I guess it's quite an open-ended question, but how how do you keep going with it? How, how do you make sure that, you, you know, mentally you're staying sane and keeping things in check with everything else? Um, I think I'm one of those people. Um, I kind of live alone as well. I've got three cats, which I kind of inherited. Um, and so I really thrive on being busy. Don't get me wrong, I do like downtime. And I do like sort of sitting in, my, one of my favorite things is sitting in a pub with a book. You know, that's one of life's absolute pleasures. But um, but a, a case in point last week, I took on a lot of freelance work last week. So last week, in the middle of doing all this, I spent some of the mornings um, reviewing the new Thor movie. Then I interviewed the director of the Thor movie. Um, and then I had to write those up as well as do everything else. But I'm kind of, I've always been a freelancer, and I think I'm always of the feast of famine kind of um, vibe. I basically, if someone says, do you want paying work? I'll go, I'll do that. And then I sort of go, how am I going to do that? But I sometimes, somehow, always manage to do that. What is quite telling, though, I noticed that as the week goes on, like this morning, say, I was going to get up a little earlier this morning to go for a run, but it was too hot anyway. But I always end up sleeping a bit later each day in the week. So clearly, my brain and my body, as the week is wearing on, kind of go, that's enough, Taffy. Do you know what I mean? You've done enough this week. So I do find that, yeah, by the end of the week, sometimes I am actually flagging a bit. But I'm always, I really am not the kind of person who can sit around and do nothing. I find that awfully difficult. I either have to be sort of, say, reading a book or looking at an article or, you know, I can't just, I can't go do beach holidays, those sort of things. If I'm on a beach holiday, I'm swimming in the sea. I'm not sitting on the sand. Does that make sense? My brain is just wired that way, I think. It's just uh, constantly on a loop of go. Um, so that that's your that's your writing day and you kind of 
you, you know, you sit down to write 50 or so words and you end up writing 600. How do you know what you're writing that day? So when you were on the train to Brighton with your longhand, had you an idea what you were working on that day? Uh, it's a mix. Some days I have a, a very solid skeleton of where it's going. I mean, I, I've known the end pretty much of all three books before I've got there, if you know what I mean, if that makes sense. Um, though, though, so now, Red Henley, I only thought of the ending about more than halfway through the book. But with the new one, I know the ending already. And I just know how to get there, if that makes sense. But like this morning, I started writing, because I don't know if you ever heard Cross Country Murder Song. That is very kind of layered in different kind of worlds and stuff. Um, and this, the new one, is even more so. Um, so I know where to go, but there was a point today when I was writing, um, and there's part of the bit I'm writing about, part of the moment is um, I'm writing about love, but also I'm writing about mania. Um, and I'm switching between both at the moment because you, you, you kind of go to these different kind of parts of the mind. Um, and I started writing one thing, and then as many writers I'm sure have told you, by the end of it, I was writing something else entirely. Uh, and then I hit a junction before I had to sort of finish and do the day job where I was suddenly found a new path through this all sounds very vague i'm so sorry um but I, I yeah i started to write one thing this morning about love which then turned into mania and kind of murder and then went back to love but when i started writing that this morning that wasn't what i set up to write but it did take me to a part of the book where i wanted to go but we've now gone via the a, a secondary path but how are you not making work much harder for yourself when you're doing that so if you're layering these things up with so many different themes and ideas of what the book will be going off in tangents and exploring new ideas that perhaps you weren't aware that you would be dealing with that day how do you kind of keep things in check to make sure you are going towards at least an end point that you have an idea of as i said to you earlier it's, it, it's just reading it back later uh, i might go back and read this now this afternoon or this evening and think that's not what I wanted it to be at all. But to be honest with you, 90% of the time it is. And it's about, I think if it's, if you're writing a book, you have to trust your instinct sometimes as well. Cause sometimes you'll go so far off the path. Uh, and that's why you need a good, like, like say there's a guy I use called Grant Moon, who who's actually has cameos in all the books, bizarrely, because of thank you. But I sent him sort of pretty much every sort of one or two chapters. I'll send him and say, is this working? Um, because sometimes I'm sure other people have told you, you just don't know. You, I, I have lots of musician friends, and I sort of talk to them sometimes about albums and songs. And they'll have made an album, which like you know, a classic album that sold millions of copies. And I sort of say to them, you know, did you think that? And they go, no. When we kind of let it go back to the label or the A and R, we didn't have an, we didn't know what it was. And I feel like that sometimes with certain chapters. I know this book is better than my other two books. I know that much so far. But I still day to day have maddening moments of like, this is the best thing I've ever written or what is wrong with you, Philip? This is absolute, you know, no one's going to care about this. No one's going to want this. So I think that's just uh, human nature. But yeah, you, the only way of knowing is is letting it breathe and then going back to it. So like I say, I'll go back to tonight to what to the 600 words I wrote this morning and they may give me exactly what I want or they may have just led me down a, a cul-de-sac. What? makes you write a book that seems quite vague but just looking at the pattern of when you write there's been gaps between them it seems that you're writing it when you fancy without necessarily being tied into what 
the, the, the demands of what a publisher might require, what makes you sit down and go, okay, I think I fancy doing this this summer, for instance? Um, I, I only have a kind of, I always, always want to write books, but because I have, you know, a day job, books don't pay the bills. I mean, it's nice to have the books. The only two books that have made me any money, I, I ghosted two books as well. I ghosted two memoirs. Um, and they are very much, you start the book here, you finish the book there. That was very Welsh, wasn't it? Um, and you have like, yeah, you have like a summer to do them or you have, you know, like in case one point part of lockdown to do one. So in terms of doing books like biographies, they are things that are very much yeah, set out. And I think this is what I'll do today. This is what I'll start doing. But in terms of the novels, I always pretty much want to write novels. But because I have such a kind of erratic lifestyle and I have such a busy schedule normally, I really have to kind of find those windows to work on the books. I mean, sometimes I, I literally would have not made notes for, I don't know, a, a month or two months. But I went up to Scotland this year to do some writing. Uh, I, stayed at my, I stayed at Phil Jupiter's house, uh, his flat in Edinburgh. And then weirdly, when I was in Edinburgh, I wrote some stuff, but I actually wrote a brand new chapter on the train journey from London to Scotland. It was like, really? Why have I even gone? I could have just sat on the train all day. But um, So I think sometimes it's, you know, the classic, the muse is upon you. But, it, but in other terms, if I could, if I had enough space and enough success, I'd probably, you know, write a new novel every sort of two or three years. But it's just, I literally haven't got the kind of time to, to actually do that. So that, the gestation period is quite long. But usually when I get started, I can usually finish a book within a couple of years because it's kind of been sitting there in my psyche all that time. So I think it's just logistics, really, and, you know, and cold, hard cash, if I'm honest. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We will be back with more from Philip in just a sec. Uh, if you'll allow me, if, and if you're enjoying the show, I'd like to just point you towards our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. It really helps us carry on. It helps us keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around, people who have done all sorts of different stuff in all sorts of different genres as often as possible. Uh, we've done like 240 episodes now. If you've learned anything along the way, 
that has just helped the way that you write, the way that you plan your day, the way that you get your ideas down. You can pledge to support us and pledge to help out the show on Patreon. Doesn't cost a lot at all. Just a little bit a month really helps us keep going. It helps us keep bringing you these chats. For that, uh, you get our thanks, as always. There is merch, there is bonus content, there is a way, even a way for your book to sponsor this show. So if you've written something, if you've got it out there, if it's not got the fanfare that it absolutely rightly deserves, let me do that for you. I will plug away, become a backer over on our Patreon page. It's one of the best ways that you can keep this show going. If you enjoy what we do, it's the best way that you can help us out by becoming a backer and pledging to support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then, chatting to Philip Wilding about his novel The Death and Life of Red Henley. It's a noir novel about 1980s New York and a religious commune in Tennessee and the myriad characters entwined in The Death of Red Henley. Now in this half we talk about the novel and about the life and death, the death and life aspect of it. Also how the story changes as he goes along and we jump back into it. Uh, with the interesting reason why he wrote quite a lot of the book, it was almost because of a tick list of what he wanted to do as an author. I always knew I wanted to write a book where you were told exactly what's going to happen in the middle of the book and see if I could still... This is how it makes things so hard for myself. I knew I wanted to write a book where, in the middle of the book, because you meet her, the kind of spirit... Because I'm not giving anything away. She dies in the first chapter. Um... And then you kind of spend a year following her life. I always wanted to do a book that was set over the year because I wanted each chapter to be a month, which I managed to do. So there are lots of flashbacks. And then in the middle of the book, there's um, the solstice part where it's the middle of the summer and she speaks to you in the first person from the page and tells you exactly, sort of metaphorically, but tells you exactly what's going to happen in the second half of the book. And I always was interested in that model. It's a bit like with cross County Murder Songs. Well, that's got a very specific kind of model. Um, so I wanted to write a book that was set in the year one year of a life, basically, and it's obviously set in two different decades. But that that each chapter was was a month of the year, and that so that was the kind of starting point for that. It's almost like I set myself homework, which I think is you know the uh, the, the plight of the writer with always doing homework. <laughs> so you set yourself that idea and that goal that this is what you wanted to do but then you've got to come up with a plot to fit into that you've got to have someone who is going to announce the ending to you halfway through uh, how did you get that down how did you figure it out in in kind of the the months or years before you started typing or well writing away um a lot of it i actually kind of came up with as i was working on it this is the case in a lot of my books a, a lot of stuff comes to comes to me when i'm actually you know in the middle of the thing um but with red I sort of always knew um, her story. And the reason why she's called, because basically there's two protagonists. There's Red Henley, well, Rose, um, who dies. And there's Detective Green, who kind of follows her story. And they, it's kind of their story, basically. Um, and the reason they're called Green and Red is because I'm colorblind. Um, I'm between Green and Red. And so, and they will make no sense to anybody else, but in my head, because I knew... But to me, that was important, and I don't know why, but it was so. I'm important. blue and green. Oh, okay. So, so you, your characters would be blue, the de- yours would be the death of Blue Henley. Um, but uh, and also, I was one of the book that was called the Death and Life of, not the Life and Death. That was another thing. That was another little tick I wanted. But uh, so red and green because I wanted them to be kind of living in these parallel worlds where or, we're not living in parallel worlds, but if they'd met in their own world, they would have fallen in love and they might have had a life together. But so there's that kind of sadness to the pair of them um, and, and then of course he has to resolve her murder to kind of 
flee himself, if, if, if you see what I mean. So that was always kind of, I know it sounds quite torturous, but that was always kind of clear in my mind. that Because um, I always think, I think Red Henley is a love story. I think Cross Country Murder Song is a love story. Cross Country Murder Song is a love story between a father and his son, um, which is weird when a lot of the views came out about that, but a lot of people said this is a story about a father and a son, bizarrely. They kind of got it. And Red Henley is, is a love story between um, Green and Red. So um, I always think that I write love stories, and then agents and publishers say, I don't think you do. But um, so, so, but, so, so with Red Henley, I kind of knew the arc. I knew what I wanted to happen. I knew about you know, Walker, who's the kind of the pivot of evil kind of thing. And I always knew that, yeah, in, in the middle of the book, you'd actually get to speak to this kind of this, this spirit that is Red Henley, and she would tell you that was what was going to happen next. I remember pitching that to my old agent, and she absolutely loved it. Um, but yeah, but I don't know. I, I, I get excited by things like that, if you know what I mean. In in that book, particularly, you're weaving together the lives of different characters. I mean, you mentioned Red, and then the detective, and you've got this socialite. You've got the you've got the Reverend as well. So you've got a lot of different things going on. Who are not, you know, a Welsh radio producer. How are you getting to know? How are you getting to know these characters and kind of inhabiting their voice in a convincing way? What what are you doing to help with that? Well, I think um, I spent a lot of my because uh, obviously cross country set in the US as well. Um, um, I spent a lot of my formative years in uh, as a young um, journalist. Um, have you ever seen the film Almost Famous? You know, um, yeah. my life was like that, but writing about you know hair metal bands and you know Guns and Roses and uh, you know Motley Crue and things like that. So I spent a lot of my really young years, far probably far too young if I'm honest on tour buses going across the US. So I spent a lot of time in New York. The New York I kind of liked about in Red Henley is kind of part of the New York I'd seen. And I've got, I used to have lots of friends who lived in New York. Um, but then I spent a lot of time in the middle of America. So I'd been down to the south. I'd been through the Midwest a lot, um, up to sort of Canada. Um, so I'd seen, I'd been really immersed in those kinds of, not those kind of worlds, but I mean, Lots of I'd actually seen America firsthand, like small town America, you know, small hotels, small motels, and I'm fascinated by the kind of the space that's within the US and always have been. Uh, even growing up, a lot of the stuff I read was like, you know, my first tattoo was an F. Scott Fitzgerald tattoo, um, because I just loved American literature and I loved that those kind of worlds. So I was always kind of inhabiting those kind of figures, almost larger than life. But uh, but then also like you know, you, you carve figures. Voices in the background, you know, small lives, little lives. But, you know, the whole world's made up of, like, you know, small, you know, pieces that make the whole. And I've always been fascinated by the way people interlock, how cultures interlock, how, you know, in one country like America or one city like New York, you can have the very dirt poor or can have the, you know, sensationally rich people. And they all inhabit kind of the same space in very different ways. And they spend time most fascinated by people who go past on the, on the pavement. I think, what's their story? What's that story? And that's kind of, I suppose, where all my books start. It's like with Cross Country Murder Song. I wanted people to love him, even though he was a serial killer. Um, but he didn't think he was a serial killer, if you know what I mean. Um, so I think, and you know, and he just goes through so many people's lives, which is the whole crux of the stories that lock together to become, you know, Cross Country Murder Song. Um, and I'm fascinated by that, those moments, those you know, moments in times where people just pass each other, like Red and Green having those kind of parallel lives. And, you know, what would have happened if, you took a different corner, a different turning. So I think in terms of characterization of things I build, that's just writing, I think. You know, I've written like TV and stuff as well. Um, 
I just think characters come from where the characters come from. But obviously, they come from my experiences of people I met. You know, I met I met kind of weird Levelands in the south of America who could well have had a cult like he has in that handle. You know, I've met very rich girls in New York. You know, all, all those people. But a lot of them as well come from all the books I've read. You know, I've been reading American literature since I was about 13, 14 years old. So I think I've always kind of lived partly in that world. And then I was lucky enough as a, a young journalist to kind of see parts of it for myself. Sorry, I, I really went off then, didn't I? No, ab- absolutely fine. Um, I am e- I am equally obsessed with America. I just came back from kind of a fishing village in Maine, which was a strange experience anyway. Um, uh, your books, as, as would would not be a surprise we were talking about fonts earlier on before we started recording we were talking about hockney and r and um that was during it wasn't it anyway uh they are the style of the writing is quite uh singular i would say um how how much thought do you give to actually the way sentences are constructed and the way they read on the page how much thought are you giving to the next word you are writing uh Oh no! How how the sentences sound, which word comes next? That's the most important thing. Um, I believe in the story, obviously, and the story is you know absolutely important as well. But I'm very stylized. I'm very obsessed with the way the prose sounds. I want it to be dense and colourful and very stylistic and very stylized. I sent um, my first agent, uh, Mal, we're still very close to, um, who got me my deal for Cross Country Murder Song. I sent him the first three chapters of the new book because it's quite different. But, um, but my favorite note, when he came back and said, you'll get a deal from this, no problem, blah, blah, you'll get a new agent, which is all fine. That's kind of seconds to me almost. Um, but he said, it's it's really different. You kind of It's a different kind of world I'm inhabiting. But he said, it sounds exactly like you. It's that writing style. It's the way you write the density of your prose. So I was delighted with that because I couldn't bear to lose that way of writing. Uh, one, I did a pitch once. You know, a band called Clutch. So I'm going off. I'm going off off piste again. But I did a pitch for um, a production company for this band Clutch for their documentary, uh, which still might get made. Um, these things take so long. Gestation takes forever. Uh, but I wrote it like a chapter of my book, very much in that style. And to their absolute credit, because they're proper menches, they're great people. Clutch. Uh, the management came back and went, "We absolutely love this, and we want to make this because of the way this is written." Um, and so that was so that's very important to me how I write and what word comes next. That's where all the crafting takes place. That's the stuff I really pull over, and that's the thing I worry about more than getting from A to B sometimes, which is probably to the detriment of my book and why my audience is so selective in the words of Spinal Tap. But um, how, how natural does that come to you, Phil? Sorry. So you say that you pour over the next word. Is is that like? literally sitting there thinking what can come next or is it a more kind of creative craft oh no i mean I, I'm, I'm, I'm no I'm, I'm quite lucky then that it comes to me because um that is the way i write that is the only way i can write um so i don't really pour but what i mean is when i've written it i then go back over it and look at it and really make sure that it's exactly it sings like i want it to sing um but no the way i write is the way i write my books as you, you can tell Who's written those books? I mean, if you if you've read any of my books, you can tell it's the same author. But but that's a style I've been developing since I was got in my teens. You know, I remember talking to one of my English teachers, and he was like, "You've kind of found your voice quite early." I mean, it wasn't the voice I've got now, but it was definitely the start of that voice. That's kind of always where I've kind of written, and it's quite important to me that that's how I write. So no, it's not that it's very difficult for me. It's just the way I do write. 
but I just go exacting standards of, you know, making it be as exactly as I want it to be. Uh, my last question, you've, you, you've told, you've told stories across, uh, well, in articles and in television, you were saying writing for TV, you might have this documentary on the way you write novels, you produce radio shows. Uh, what have you learned uh, at the real and this might be a shit question, but we can crack on. What have you learned? Are the like the this this the things that are consistent across all storytelling? What needs to be in there? Well, that's, oh, that's not such a shit question. It's a good question. Um, characters have to be right. Dialogue is so important. I hate how a lot of writers write dialogue because you read it and you think no one talks like that. All you have to do is say it out loud. When I do dialogue, I actually read it back out loud. To just to check it works. Just the way some writers like dialogue. It's like people don't speak like that. People, oh, it just drives me mad a lot of that. But um, yeah, dialogue, characters, um, storytelling obviously is absolutely you know, on the nose quite answered that question. But I think empathy, I think you have to kind of be involved in the story almost, not to the point where you know it's, it's all consuming, but you have to kind of want to be part of something. It's like, I think why good radio shows work, like why Danny Baker works well as a broadcaster. You want to kind of be in the same room as those people. That's how I feel about radio, is that you want to be in the same room as those voices. You want to be engaged with them. And I think in terms of like storytelling, radio, whatever I've done, you want people to be, to want to be a part of that, to be, to, for it to be something that they feel is speaking to them. I think that's, I think that's a really important part. That is it for this week's episode of Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Philip Wilding for coming on the show. Uh, That book is The Death and Life of Red Henley. Best place to get a copy is probably through Amazon or searching for Philip Wilding online. Next week, we're chatting to SK Tremaine about their brand new novel, The Drowning Hour, which is set in the Stanhope, a once grand hotel in Essex. That's with SK Tremaine next week on the show. In the meantime, you can support us and help us out patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at writers pod there. Leave us a review on Apple, by the way, if that's how you listen. That really helps out as well. And get in touch. Let me know what you think. Use the contact page at writersroutine.com. And I will see you next week with SK Tremaine on the show. Until then, bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.